All right. Good afternoon, all of the New Philly, New Philly people, and all of our guests that are here today. Uh, once again, I just want to welcome you with a warm welcome. Glad you could join us today. Maybe for some of you, you've never stepped foot into a church ever before. And this is your first time in a church. Well, hallelujah, we celebrate that. And we're glad that you made this your, the first church you've ever visited. It's a good one. If you haven't been to church in a while, and this is your first time stepping foot into a church in a while, we just want to say welcome as well. Welcome home. And maybe you left the church for different reasons. But we want to give you a different set of reasons for you to stay. For you to stay close to the heart of God. He is your creator. He is your maker. And he knows what he's doing. A lot of times, churches can do a lot of harm than good. They actually drive people. They're better at driving people out of the church than they are in gathering people into the church. But hallelujah, there is grace. And God, through his grace, he turns all things for your good. It says in Romans 8, 28, God turns all things for the good of those who love him. Those, are called, those who are called according to his purpose. So no matter what your spiritual background is like, we just want to welcome you here today. Just have a good time, all right? You can laugh here. It's all right. New Philly is more like uh, the Apollo than it is like a typical church. I don't know if y'all know the Apollo. Nobody laugh at that. People don't know about the Apollo? Uh, oh, man. Cultural difference. Hallelujah. Age difference. No, there is no age difference. Same generation right here. All right, uh, I want us to turn to Colossians chapter 1. For people who do have a Bible with them today, turns to Colossians chapter 1. And here at New Philly, we think the Bible is pretty important, so a lot of times we read from it. And I will preach from the Word of God rather than out of my own opinions. Because my opinions can't transform nobody's life. But God's word can. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. I'm just going to read that out loud and you guys to stay with me. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. Or in NIV says that he might have the supremacy. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. We'll stop there. A lot of people, they want to see God. And they claim that unless they see God, they will not believe in God. They say, show me God and I'll believe in him. Show me God and I'll put my life into his hands. But if I don't see this God you talk about, why should I put my trust in him? What does God look like? How tall is he? Does he look Asian? Caucasian? Does he look like us or does he have no form whatsoever? What does God think about? Does God have emotions? Do the things on this earth affect and influence those emotions? And if God could talk, what would he say? And a lot of people believe, they think that seeing is believing. Let me see God and I'll become a Christian. Let me see God and I'll devote my life to the teachings of God. I'll sell everything. I'll do anything for this God. But you first got to show me. Let me see him. There's a popular song that goes, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. Well, those who are outside of church are saying, Open the eyes. Just open my eyes. I don't want to see the... I don't, want the, oh, oh, I don't have eyes in my heart. I have eyes right here. Show me through these eyes. Show me God. I want to see him. Here in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. Who is this pronoun he talking about here? Well, it helps to go back, maybe backtrack two verses. If you look at verse 13 and 14, it tells us who this pronoun is referring to. It says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom, now the pronoun is already taking on the beloved son, okay? In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And without reference to any other person in between, it starts with he. Okay, so if you know how to read English real well, all right, usually if there's nothing in between, the pronoun, if there's a pronoun that is mentioned, it oftentimes is referring to the last person or thing that was mentioned. Okay, the last thing or, uh, thing or person that's mentioned here is his beloved son in whom we have redemption. And then the Bible says in verse 15, it begins, he, who is the beloved son? In Christianity, who is the beloved son? Jesus. Yesu. Yeshua. Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image 
of the invisible God. Do you want to see God? Well, here he is. Look at Jesus. Look at him. Look at the way he relates to people. Look at his emotions. Look at his words. Look at his love. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to see God? You look at Jesus. When Jesus was on the earth 2,000 years ago, and his disciples had not quite figured out who he really was, they asked Jesus, show us the Father. In other words, they were saying, show us God. Just like a lot of atheists and agnostics today say. They were like, show us God. Show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus responded like this. He said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus said, how can you ask me? I've been with you all this time. How can you ask me to show you the Father? You see me? You've seen the Father. Now, if I ever said that about anybody that I know, you think I would be crazy. You know? Jin is a good disciple here in our church. He is such a good servant. <laughs> and if Jin goes around the house and he says, he says to newcomers, they say, man, I would love to meet Pastor Christian. And Jin says, if you see me, you have seen Pastor Christian. All right, you'll be looking at his blonde hair and thinking, no, this guy is, something's off. Obviously, Jin can't do that and I can't do that. But Jesus did. He said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to see God, if you want to see theology that gets as accurate as possible, just look at Jesus. Jesus is theology. He's perfect theology with two feet. If you want to know what is on the Father's heart, look at the public ministry of Jesus. Jesus said that he does only what he sees his Father doing. So when he was healing the sick, casting out demons, preaching good news, giving hope to the poor, he was doing the work of the Father. He was doing that which was on the Father's heart. Anyone who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Well, you might be like, well, that's great, Pastor Christian, but that doesn't help me because I can't see Jesus today. If I want to see Jesus today and get a clearer idea of who God is, then where do I go? Where does he stay? What phone number can I call to set up an appointment? You see that? Your argument doesn't really help me. Because I can't see Jesus. In regards to our situation today, Jesus already spoke into it. He said in John 20, 29, he said, because you have seen me, and he's talking about physically, because you, y'all have seen me, he's talking to the disciples back 2,000 years ago, because y'all have seen me physically, you have believed. 
He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who have not seen me physically yet believe. But that does not nullify the idea that we are able to see Jesus. Now, we can't see Jesus physically today. We can't see him physically. Oh, we will when Jesus returns. The promise of the Bible is that when Jesus returns, he's going to return physically. When Jesus resurrected, his was a physical resurrection. He said, look at me, touch me, give me something to eat. A ghost does not have flesh and bones like I do. Now, Jesus returned, he resurrected physically, and when he returns, he will also return physically. And we will share in the resurrection of our, of, of our bodies, just like Jesus was resurrected in his physical body. You know, when we get to heaven, it's not like a whole bunch of us are going to just be like float, like, you know, floating spirits. Like, oh, we're in heaven now. Yo, Randy. Never, I never have to eat anymore. I don't have a body. We just swim and flow through heaven. No, 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 no. Good theology will tell you, you share in the resurrection. And it's a physical one. It's not a spiritual one like Buddhists might tell you. All right? It is a physical resurrection that we share in. Now, although we cannot physically see Jesus today and meet with him, I want to submit to you the idea that our generation is able to see Jesus more clearly than the generation that lived and traveled with Jesus throughout Judea 2,000 years ago. That we have a clearer picture of Jesus than they did 2,000 years ago. Do you know why? Because we have this. Let me explain. Within this book, we have four gospel accounts. Four different men taking four different approaches. Four different, well, I mean not four different Several different emphases. And what they do is they can't write down everything that Jesus did in three years. Because that would just be so, it would get too long. You know? But they selectively choose what to include. The things that they thought were very important. And then they do enough miracles. They, they give you enough of Jesus' public ministry, so you get an idea of what he did during those three years. Right? And they put it into four books called the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four Gospels. Everybody say four Gospels. gospels. The four Gospels, they give us a clear picture of Jesus so that we can see what he did, what he said, and how he responded. We get even glimpses of his prayer life. We even get actual prayers that he prayed. And that's a trip. Because I pray during the week. Nobody records my prayer and tries to write a book about it. But we get a glimpse of even his prayer life. And we learn how to pray just even reading through what Jesus prayed. If you think about it, even Jesus' closest disciples, they did not have access to all of these various accounts. Think about that. 
They only had access to what they experienced physically with him when they were with him. It's like this. It's like meeting a person. Uh, let's say I meet. Uh, it's like meeting somebody. Pick on somebody today. Who's, uh, who's secure in who they are. I'm done with picking on Jen. Let's say uh, Sarah, Sarah Reed, right? Sarah? Okay, Sarah from New Zealand. Let's say you meet Sarah, and Sarah is here at New Philly every single week for three years. In fact, not only do you see her on Sundays, but you have small group with her. Oh, you do? Good for you, Jamie. This analogy will speak right to you. And after three years... Let's say Sarah, she moves to another city. And somebody comes up to Jamie and says, Jamie, do you know Sarah Reed from New Zealand? And Jamie's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. I had a small group with her for almost three years. We hung out. We went to eat together. We studied the Bible together. We used to go to Lotte World together, all kinds of stuff. But then a professional biographer interviews Sarah Reed, and writes a biography about her life. Jamie picks up a copy of this biography, and she skips to the chapters covering the three years where Sarah was at New Philly, just because she was curious if her name was mentioned in the book. <laughs> Did Sarah mention my name? Let me, let me find my name. Anyway, let's say she goes to read the chapters about the three years in which Sarah was in Korea, And Jamie starts to realize, through reading that biography, she finds out things about Sarah that she had either forgotten or had never even known about. Sarah had not even mentioned to her. And after reading that biography, Jamie now has a fuller sense of who Sarah is than even through the three years that they had spending time together. Now, don't get me wrong. Those three years were very precious. But something like a biography just gives you an insight that just hanging out doesn't. That's what I'm telling you right now. I'm giving you the idea that you have access to a more intimate and clearer picture of Jesus than even the closest of his disciples had when they were hanging out with him for three years. Because remember, during those three years, most of those three years, they didn't even have the right picture of Jesus. They didn't really understand who he was. When Jesus talked about going to the cross, they were, Peter was like, never, Jesus. I will never allow it. I will die for you. And Jesus is like, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. In fact, you're going to deny me three times today before the rooster crows. Right? And, and, and these disciples, they spent time with him for three years. But I'm telling you right now, you have a clearer picture of Jesus than they did. Let me give you another example. The rest of the New Testament. I know the rest of the New Testament, are not, they're not the Gospels. But let me tell you something right now. It's all about Jesus. When you read the book of Acts, those are the things not that man does. Acts is not so accurate to call it the Acts of the Apostles. It's more accurate to call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit is in oneness with Jesus, it's really the Acts of Jesus. Everything 
that is written about in the book of Acts is really about Jesus. It's about what he would say, what he would do. In fact, when the persecutor of the church, Saul, who later became the apostle Paul, when Saul was on the road to Damascus, guess who shows up on the road? It's Jesus. And jacks him up. Just by asking him one question. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You know? And, and Saul was forever changed by that encounter. Uh, the other letters written by some of the apostles. These are all letters that point to the character, the actions, the words of Jesus. You see, whatever the Holy Spirit does, Jesus and the Father does. Because although they are three distinct persons with three distinct functions, God claims that they are one team, one family, one God. Okay? Be careful of certain teachings that are out there in the church that tries to teach that the Trinity is actually modal, meaning that God exists in three modes. When he wants to be father, he goes into that mode. When he wants to be the son, he goes into that mode. When he wants to be the spirit, he goes into that mode. That is actually one God existing omnipresently in three modes. It's not what the Bible really teaches us. That's an old uh, heresy called, let me see if I got it right, Sabellianism. All right, all right. It's fresh in my mind because I just did church history. And there's other, other people that, that have pushed that. God is three persons in one. That's where we get the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's not so much that the Bible actually explicitly says Trinity, but it is implicit throughout the entire book. God is three distinct persons. I mean, God wants to be relational with us. And that's very natural for him to do that. You know why? Because he's already relational in the Godhead. Who appears in the visions of John in the book of Revelation? Once again, it's Jesus. The Alpha, the Omega. All right. How about the Old Testament? The Old Testament is also all about Jesus. You see, on the road to Damascus in Luke chapter 24, there were two disciples. After Jesus died and resurrected... And before he really showed himself to all the disciples, there are two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus, different town. And as they were on their way, Jesus in his uh, re, uh, resurrected state appears to them, but they don't recognize him. And the Bible says that Jesus took the time to open up the scriptures to them. And it says here in verse 27, Beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. From Moses, you know, Moses, that word Moses is simply summing up the first five books of the Bible. Traditionally, the Jews believed uh, they, would, they would call that the, the book of Moses, 
the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those first five books, Jesus started there, and he said, you see that? And they were like, yeah, I never got the point of that story. And Jesus is like, that's actually talking about Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't reveal who he was yet. So he's like, that's talking about this Jesus that you just met, that you just, see, you just saw crucified. What, what about all these psalms, these poems? We're not very poetic. We never really enjoy reading the psalms. And Jesus is like, look at the psalms right here. Let me show you. It's all about that man, Jesus. Look at, look at Psalm chapter, what is it, chapter, like, even in the beginning of Psalms, it's like chapter, 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 hallelujah. <laughs> chapter 2, right away in chapter 2, it says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. They're like, what does that mean? And Jesus is like, that's talking about Jesus. He went through the entire Old Testament. They spent hours. This is the greatest Bible study that has ever taken place. (laughs) And Jesus showed them through the entire Old Testament the things concerning himself. You know, dispensationalists will try to tell you that the Old Testament belongs to the Jews and that the New Testament belongs to the church. They have a very literal way of reading the scripture. I can't agree with that because Jesus didn't read it literally. He read it literally in certain parts and figuratively in others. All right? He could not have read the Old Testament literally and done what he did on the road to Emmaus. All right? He went through the whole Old Testament and said, this is all about me. At that moment on the road to Emmaus, they didn't have... The Bible, as we have it. The, when, they, when the word scripture, it says there, it's only talking about the Old Testament. We don't have a New Testament at this time. Jesus just got resurrected. So the whole Old Testament, Jesus shows that it's all about him. You see that? We have a book from front to back that's all about Jesus. We're saying, well... I can't meet with him face to face today. So I cannot see God today. And that is a lie of the enemy. That is a lie of the devil. The devil, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The devil is trying to steal your your common sense. Actually, it's not common sense. It's like kind of like grace-given sense. That's common once you have that grace. Uh, I shouldn't use that word. Although we cannot physically see Jesus today and meet with him, our generation is able to see Jesus better than any generation that has ever lived in history. How? Because we have the Bible. We have the whole thing. In fact, the Bible often refers to itself as the Word of God. It's a concept called the Word of God. And in John chapter 1... It says that Jesus is actually the word of God made flesh. Now, this was not a foreign concept to the Jews. Because in the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs personifies wisdom as a person. 
and says that wisdom was there at the creation of the world. What? What did wisdom look like? What did wisdom say? Did wisdom clap? You know, but it personifies wisdom. And what John is doing is taking that same concept and saying this word, this scripture, it is Jesus. And Jesus is the word of God in the form of human flesh. It says in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. What? Why are we using a personal pronoun for a concept, the word of God? What, we shouldn't say all things were made through it. No, it says all things were made through him. Why? Because we're personifying the word of God. And without him was not, not anything made that was made. Now, this verse, John chapter 1, sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Why? Because we just read it in Colossians chapter 1. Almost the same thing. Uh, Let me read Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 again. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Who is this he that we are talking about? It's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the creator of heaven and earth. Amen? By Jesus, all things were created. In heaven, on earth, the sea, everything in them, it was created through him. And for him. Do you want to see God? Pastor Christian, do some kind of trick right now. Show me God. I'll do a trick right now. I'll throw the Bible at you. (laughs) And you can catch it and read it. You want to see God? Just look through it and you will see God. You want to see God, look at Jesus. You want to see Jesus, then look at the word of God. Jesus was this in the flesh. Everything that was mentioned here, he lived it, he breathed it, he taught it, he behaved on it. He ministered the very word of God. So what does God look like? How tall is he? Well, let me give you an answer. God looks like a man. Now, I know that sounds a little blasphemous. Stay with me here. God looks like a Jewish man. He doesn't look Korean. <laughs> He's not black. Although, you know, some, some uh, sects of Christianity try to claim that he had dark skin. He may have had darker skin, but he wasn't black. He was a Jew. Show me a black Jew and maybe I'll believe that. Jesus was a Jesus was a Galilean Jew. And he probably, if he did his father's business, and I guess we don't really know historically if he did or not, but if he did carpentry, he had muscles. He wasn't he wasn't some he wasn't some wimpy man. He was a man's man. He had muscles. A little bit of a six pack too. 
That's why when Jesus was whipped 39 times, he didn't die. And he had to carry that cross. He made it all the way. He needed some help. He wasn't that strong now. Come on. He didn't have like, you know, Taibo back then. And he might have lost a lot of muscle from all the 40 days of fasting. I, I, I know how that felt. <laughs> but Jesus was a man. He was strong. He was a strong man. What's, what's God look like? He looks like a Jewish man. And when he comes back, that's what he'll look like. Jesus ain't going to change up his face. He's not going to get plastic surgery and be like, hey, hey, I just want to trip y'all out. It's me. <laughs> it's me. No, he's going to look. He's going to look like the man that died. And resurrected, he's going to have that same Jewish face. I hope he speaks English, though. I'm not sure about that. I am learning Hebrew, though. So I'll translate for some of (laughs) y'all. But here's one thing that's clear. God is not some far-off being that is unwilling and unable to interact with his creation like Aristotle taught. Did you know we got that concept thousands of years ago from the Greek philosophers? Once Aristotle taught it, it spread like wildfire. It got into Christian theology. Our systematic theology has an Aristotelian. Am I saying that right, Pastor Benjamin? Aristotelian. Aristotelian bent. And what Aristotle taught is, God is perfect. He is the perfect being. And he cannot interact with us. Because if he does, it taints his perfection. His holiness. His righteousness. So therefore, God just sits above in the heavens. And he watches us jack things up. (laughs) And he says, I will intervene, but I can't. Because I'm so holy. And you know what? Unfortunately, that's what a lot of Christians believe. They don't believe it in those many words, but religion tells them that God is so far off. God is this holy God. Holy, holy, holy. And, and you know, God is holy, by the way. Don't get me wrong. But did you know when Jesus walked the earth, he referred to God as holy? Like, I forget the statistic. It's like three or four times. Two times. So Steve Chaw taught us. I can't verify that. I have to do the research myself. But he taught us, and he's a trustworthy man. I'm going to stick with what he said. (laughs) Jesus only referred to God two times, according to Steve Chaw, as holy. But do you know how many times Jesus referred to God as Father? It was a lot more. (laughs) It was a lot. It was like... It's like 35 times or something like that. 200 times. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, that's crazy. 200 times compared to two. But, you know, the religious teachers of the law, what were they focused on? They were focused on being religious, being holy. When I fast, let me show everybody what a holy man I am. Hey, everyone, I'm fasting again. Look at my holiness. And Jesus said, don't be like them. In fact, they don't even know my, they don't even know my father. In fact, they're not even children of Abraham. They're not children of my father. They're children of the devil. And they were, 
Disciples are like, are you serious, Jesus? <laughs> These men, they study the word of God. How can they get it wrong? Because they're, they're not studying the word of God in the right spirit. Jesus said, you know what? I'm going to tell that to their face one day. And he did. <laughs> one day they got in an altercation and these Jewish leaders, they kept trying to set him up. They kept asking him all these questions, you know. And Jesus got irked. And one day Jesus has emotions. God has emotions. <laughs> and Jesus got angry. He just said, you're our children of the devil. <laughs> and the disciples were like, calm down, Jesus. It's a little harsh rhetoric. And Jesus kept going. He went on a long tirade for like three or two or three chapters about how they, how they continually killed off the prophets and that all those people that did the murdering were actually their true fathers because they had that same spirit. God is not what Aristotle taught. God is what the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches that God is relational. That God looks like us. But you know what? It's, it's actually, let me, let me correct that. We actually look like him. Because in Genesis it says that God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. It's not so much that God looks like us, it's that we look like God. But sin, Satan tries to use sin to destroy and pollute and taint that image. Does God look like us? Yeah, he does. He has two eyes, two feet, two hands. He has hair. Jesus, he has a lot of facial hair. So he's a little different than us Asians. More like Brady back there. But once again, it is more accurate to say we look like him. And God is continually... For Christians, transforming Christians from glory to glory so that they may look more and more like Jesus. What does God think about? Does God have emotions? If God could talk, what would he say? What does God think about? Well, surprisingly, the answer is God actually thinks about you. And you, and you, and you, and you, 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 you. It blows my mind just thinking about, like, three people at the same time. God could think about all y'all. It's crazy. The Bible says, who am I, God, that you will be mindful of me? You know, if you ever get a revelation of that, not just, like, hear it, but, like, get a revelation of it, where, like, God's like, this word is true, 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 true. (laughs) And you're like, (laughs) you're thinking about me right now, God? (laughs) Who am I? That you be mindful of me. But it's, it's true. It's amazing. Just like Israel Hound things. It's amazing. God thinks about you. What does God think about? He thinks about you. Does he think about you all the time? I don't know, but he thinks about you a lot. <laughs> he thinks about you. 
Mary said in Luke chapter 1, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Mary's like, who am I? But God has been mindful of me. Wow. Does God have emotions? Yes. The gospels tells us Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus was about to resurrect Lazarus. Lazarus died. Jesus is about to resurrect him. And you would think, man, if I was Jesus, I would not weep. You know, I'll come in all strong. I'll be like, Martha, calm down. Mary? It's all right, Mary. I love you, Mary. Mary, you're, you're so sweet, Mary. Martha, calm down. <laughs> I will come in and I will be like, don't worry. I am the resurrection and the life. And then I will look upon Lazarus' tomb and I'll be like, <laughs> you're going to resurrect, brother. And I'll wait for the time and then I'll say, Lazarus, come forth. But you know what Jesus did? Jesus knew he was going to resurrect Lazarus. And he went, he saw two. <laughs> and he started weeping. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. We get it because Jesus did something unthinkable. In Aristotelian logic, it would not be possible for God who is perfect in all his being, who is sovereign in all his knowledge. Why would God ever engage his emotions and weep over something that he knows that he's about to fix in a second? Why? Because God has emotions. There's a concept called divine condescension that Pastor Benjamin has been teaching me. And it, and it says that God intentionally limits himself in terms of knowledge, power, presence, in order to have relationship with us. So sometimes God will come to Doug and say, Doug, where is your iPod? God will never say that, but Doug, what are you going to do about your decision for your work, your job? What are you going to do about your decision for, for your job? And Doug is like, well, God, duh, you're God, you know. Why don't you just tell me and I'll do it, all right? And that's not the way God actually wants Doug to respond. Because when God asks Doug, what are you going to do about your job? In that moment, God actually wants to hear, honestly, what does, God, what does Doug want to prefer? What does Doug prefer? What does Doug want to do? How is Doug irked by his boss? How is Doug struggling with his coworkers? He wants to hear all of that. And so he divinely condescends. And says, Doug, how's your job going? And it's not like a mocking question. <laughs> I already know how hard you are, how hard it's been. You know, it's not like that. It's like, Doug, honestly, how's your job doing? I want to hear your heart. That's why the Psalms are so beautiful. Because in the Psalms, you have a man that engages God in the fullness of man's emotion. And then God, you know, I mean, God, God's got emotions. I mean, even when you see the uh, gospel accounts of Jesus, what does Jesus doesn't just weep? He gets happy. He's happy. He's entering Jerusalem on a donkey, and he's happy. And the religious leaders are like, hey, tell your disciples to shut up. They're saying blasphemous things. And Jesus is like, ha, 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 Hey, religious leaders, if these people don't cry out, the rocks will. <laughs> he's happy. And 
And Jesus goes into the temple and he's angry. God, you're God, Jesus. You know all things. Why are you getting angry? Jesus gets in there. He takes a whip and he's like, you <laughs> you've turned my father's house into a den of robbers. And he starts throwing the tables over. That's craziness. God, Jesus, you are God. Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus has emotions. God has emotions. Bible says God is slow to anger. It doesn't say God doesn't get angry. It doesn't say God is, says no to anger. It says God is slow to anger. Meaning, don't test me. <laughs> I am God. I'm slow to get angry, but I will. Push me. Don't cross me. I'm God. But God has emotions. Smack you in the mouth, Aristotle. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm confronting a mindset that many of us have in the Western culture. That's what I'm doing right now. What would God say? If Jesus was standing here today with this mic, this wireless mic in his hand, and we gave it to him and I sat down, what would Jesus say in this room? You know, first of all, you know what he would say? He would talk to all of the people that do not know him yet. He would talk to that one. He would, he would talk to the 99 later, but he'll go after the one first. That's what I believe. He would talk to all the unchurched people or all the people that have been like prodigals that have walked away from the faith. He would address them first and he would say, I am the good shepherd. And I lay my life down. I lay my life down for my sheep. I love you dearly. There is an enemy. And that enemy, the thief, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that you may have life. And life abundant. Jessica. Jennifer. Michael. I love you so much. And I've created you. And I got a purpose for you. And I don't want you to delay that purpose any longer. The only way you can access that purpose is through being in relationship with me. Stop saying seeing is believing. In the kingdom of God, you must first believe in order to truly see. I know how hard it's been. Come to me. I've invited all the weary and burdened. And I have promised to give you rest. What the world is telling you is not your true identity. What my word says is your true identity. You're not an orphan. You don't have to perform to get accepted or loved. I've already proclaimed my love to you. When I went to the cross 
and shed my blood to forgive all your sin, to give you peace with God through my blood so that we can have unhindered relationship for all of eternity. If God was standing here today, what would he say? What would he say if he had this mic? I, would, I believe that he would say something like that. I shed my blood so that you can have peace, joy, and righteousness. Get out of the driver's seat. I know how tiring it can be to be the master over your own life. That's because that role was never created for you. Your life works best when you allow me to be in that driver's seat. When you allow me to lead. When you allow me to speak into your life. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And on the cross, the Bible says that Christ Jesus shed his blood and he became sin so that you can become the righteousness of God. I want to ask everyone right now just to close your eyes for a moment. And I want to give an opportunity in this room for anyone that wants to respond to the word that has been preached.